Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to The Waves, Slate's podcast about gender, feminism, and a maestro without equal. Every episode, you get a new pair of feminists to talk about the thing we can't get off our minds. Today, you've got me, Rebecca Onion, a senior editor at Slate. And later in the show, I'm going to be joined by Erica Lance, a reporter and producer who just put out the second season of her podcast, The Turning. Uh, This one has the subtitle, Room of Mirrors. In the U.S., there is ballet before George Balanchine and ballet after George Balanchine. Balanchine grew up dancing for the Tsar in Russia. He survived the Russian Revolution. He turned classical ballet into something new. This is a show about the choreographer George Balanchine, who died in 1983. But not really. It's really a show about the women who worked with him as ballerinas. And how that work, which demanded a level of devotion people who aren't ballerinas, like me, always find absolutely fascinating. It's really beautiful, has really great music and a good vibe. Can't wait to talk to Erica about how she managed to pull this off. We'll be back after the break. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome, Erica Lance, to The Waves. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. I really love listening to this podcast. And as a person who read a lot of ballet fiction as a teenager and then sort of didn't think about it for a while, um, I found it just immersive and so interesting um, to sort of dive back into that world. If it's not too personal, could you tell me what your relationship with ballet is? So, so far, I listened to four episodes. You're far from an active presence on the podcast. It's not really sort of a the sort of narrative podcast that features a lot of your reflections. And I'd love to know what your interest in your history and ballet is. Yeah. Um, and we're partway through the season right now. But later in the season, I do actually talk a little bit about myself, which is so weird for me as um, someone who is a, I never do that as a journalist. But um, my background is that I danced ballet as a kid. And I got into ballet similar to how a lot of kids do. And I just loved to dance. I loved music. And I started when I was three and then started getting pretty serious and seriously considered pursuing it as a career. Um, Thought I might become a ballet dancer. Wondered, should I quit high school and and focus on ballet? And then partway through high school, um, I actually decided to quit ballet. 
And um, I think ballet taught me discipline and dedication and just a love for expression. And it was really empowering in a lot of ways. Um, And I think looking back, it also bred some things in me like perfectionism or sort of an all or nothing attitude that I think I need to examine more. And when I quit, I kind of put that away and didn't really like ballet left my life and I moved on entirely. Um, partly because of that all or nothing attitude. And so when I was thinking about season two for the turning, I just started to realize there were a lot of overlapping issues um, between the world of ballet and the world of nuns, specifically the missionaries of charity, Mother Teresa's nuns that we explored in season one. So I was thinking about like the role of obedience, um, this all in attitude that can almost kind of become cultish, the fetishization of suffering, um, being being silent and taking orders, suppressing your inner self for the sake of the group, and also these power structures in which, in some cases, one person has almost complete control of your life. Um, And also maybe entering something that when you first enter, you don't know the extent of what you're really signing up for, and you slowly discover that as you're sucked in more. Um, And I think there are a lot of issues that really any industry, like we're all talking about these things. And I thought it would be really great to tackle some of them through the lens of ballet. And what's been interesting to me is how many people take ballet as a kid and are affected by the culture. Yeah. I mean, you're obviously talking about sort of the most extreme possible case. But what something I love about the show, at least so far, is how it sort of manages to also show that this one man seems to infiltrate a lot of different levels of American ballet. People were trained to hone his particular sensibilities, even his ethics, so that there would be a readiness, uh, definitely a readiness in all of us to fall right into the company, ready to execute and embody his visions. Because he was so dominant for so long. That's the other thing. So it's interesting. I found your interviews in this really compelling. And to hear you talk about the all or nothingness of deciding to commit, um, it makes me wonder all the more how you found and got these ballerinas to speak with you um, and how you managed to get them to sort of be reflective. It seems like if you're all in if you're still sort of like very identified with your experience with this man, with this whole scene, it might be hard to get them to reflect. Or if they're all out, it also might be hard to get them to reflect. Um, But these women are older now. Um, How'd they agree to speak to you? And how did you find the interviews? Yeah, those are all really good points. And I do think sometimes when you're in it, it is harder to reflect on what's actually happening, like anything in any of our lives. Um, And some of the people we interviewed are famous dancers from Balanchine's era that I wanted to try to talk to. And certainly not everyone wanted to talk with us because there are um, some hot button issues involved. But I mean, the interviews were amazing. I was just riveted from start to stop. They could speak with this incredible thoughtfulness and... um, openness about their experiences. I think you make a really good point that it can be hard to look at something that's ingrained in your own identity. I find that in my own life. Sometimes it's hard to like look at myself. I remember I was talking to one woman who said, look, like this is my life every minute of every day. 
And by this, she meant ballet and also her work with Balanchine. It's just such a, an integral part of identity um, for these people. But I thought it was really interesting. Like one current dancer I spoke with, she had like nine years during which she wasn't dancing. Her name's Catherine Morgan. And this is really rare. Usually you become a professional dancer and you dance until you retire from the stage. But she had some health issues. She went away for a while and she actually spent some years outside of ballet before returning as a professional performing dancer again. And she said she started to notice these things about ballet culture that weren't as normal as she thought they were. And she started to think, I feel like I've been brainwashed. <laughs> like, why is this normalized? You sort of alluded to the fact that there are tricky topics in Balanchine's history. So if people who are listening don't know, some of these stories about the way he um, acted with the people that he worked with have been public, right? Since whenever Gelsey Kirkland wrote her autobiography, <laughs> um, we've known some facts like that he had a series of relationships with women that he worked with um, who were young, teenagers, young 20-somethings, um, even as he got older, and that he exerted control over aspects of people's lives, like dictating what perfume they should wear or having them get abortions. Um, of course, all kinds of weight and body control aspects, but also it's not really wanting to, them to get married and have commitments outside of ballet. So I sort of wonder about that. Obviously, this man has passed away a long time ago. Um, and there's a way that this story could have been another historical Me Too. <laughs> Here's a genius who basically made himself the most important person in these women's lives, whether or not they were his lovers. And a lot of them were his lovers, or not a lot, but, you know, a number. And But you somehow managed to bring nuance to the story. And I don't know, I feel like there's some way that you managed to avoid the familiar rhythm of this guy is great, but he's also awful. And, like, we're going back and forth with our heads swinging back and forth like we're at a tennis match. Um, how did you approach that problem. That was a real challenge for me, just trying to find a balance that felt right. I really, with this sort of trope, I really wanted to understand the relationships in this situation on a specific level to understand how they work and how they happen and what's really going on. And the thing about Balanchine is that dancers who worked for him are for the most part um, almost exclusively complimentary of him. There are not very many of us left around that actually grew up with Balanchine. We are a dying breed and we know it. I realized that it was like I grew up with Mozart, you know. They respect and admire him. They think of him as one of the most important people in their lives. And so it was important to me to really give that reality some space and at the same time, being able to just show through their stories and experiences, sometimes without having to say it, but just show how complicated and messed up um, the power dynamics can become. And so I think it can be, you know, damaging to just let people praise some praise this guy, excuse his behavior without questioning that response. Um, and I also think it can diminish our understanding of what's going on uh, by just ignoring the perspectives of people who want to defend him. Um, a lot of former dancers have said this refrain of like, it's not like Balanchine was Harvey Weinstein. Oh, interesting. W what do they mean? 
he's known for being such a gentleman and so chivalrous and so kind. And so they just see it as a different thing. And, and it is. They're, they're different stories, different people, different things that are happening. But I don't think Harvey Weinstein is the bar. There are a lot of different ways to cause damage. Really? Well, that's interesting. You mentioned his gentlemanliness, because I think what you're getting across is that there was like a um, old worldliness about him or something. And I didn't know until listening to the podcast that he lived through the Russian Revolution and had been... Um, in Russia during that time. But then again, I mean, these women are also older as well, you know? Yeah, I think that's a good point. It is a different time. And that doesn't need to be an excuse, but it can be a context that's useful to think about. But I think also, even at that time, one could probably see that some of these relationships weren't necessarily healthy. But yeah, it, it does feel kind of complicated in a way. And, and he's not here anymore, you know, to talk to him about it. Anytime that you're writing about a, his, a dynamic that existed historically um, and speaking with people who participated in it at the time, they're going to have specific relationship to it that we might not now if there was another Balanchine who was acting the way that he acted. Yeah. And what's interesting to me is also another mother of a famous dancer named Suzanne Farrell, whose story we talk about a little bit as well. I don't think we included this in the podcast, but her mother was also seeing this dynamic and very much for it. She's like, don't you want to be Mrs. Balanchine? I think that's how she put it. Um, she saw that this potentially marrying Balanchine or being with Balanchine, despite the decades age difference, could be a real boon to her career. We're going to take a break here. But if you want to hear more from Erica and myself on another topic, check out our Slate Plus segment. Today we're talking about how ballerinas are more like nuns than you might expect. Please consider supporting the show by joining Slate Plus. Members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, no hitting the paywall on the Slate site, and bonus content of shows like this one. To learn more, go to slate.com slash thewavesplus. Welcome back to The Waves. Okay, Erica, one thing I really loved about this podcast was the sort of physical descriptions of dance and the use of music. So it's so evocative. It's so well deployed. And often in media about ballet, I feel like it's the physical mortification that really gets top billing. I mean, think about like Black Swan, where your body starts falling apart as you like become more and more committed to the dance. Um, and I guess there's a little bit of that in here, but you managed to also get I felt like just technical enough in your descriptions to let us see why it could also be like an ecstatic experience to be able to get good enough at dance to do the kinds of things that Balanchine was asking. Um, and how did you approach that? It definitely helped that I could understand, you know, when they're talking about different steps, what they're talking about. You're totally right. There is this fascination with the pain that ballerinas experience. There's this weird desire to know how bloody are their toes. Um, <laughs> and that's that's real. Like the thing is, there is a lot of pain and more pain than I actually think the public even realizes um, because they're just such incredibly elite athletes and there's so much pressure and job insecurity that they're dancing through injuries. They're dancing through stress fractures. Their days are unbelievably long and they're dancing all day. And yeah, I, I grew up dancing and I know 
how it can hurt when you dance on point all day. And I know that injuries can be painful. But even I was surprised with what I was encountering and just like how much they tough through pain. But I do think that um, it's also weird that in the public perception, these pain points are where we start. Because for dancers, that's not where it starts. It starts with a love for this art form. And that's actually a part I think the general public doesn't know that much about because a lot of people just don't go to ballets. It's this weird art form. It can feel very elite and old school and rich and probably intimidating or frilly or feminine or um, something girls are into. And I think there's just an underestimation of the depth of the art in ballet performance. It's true. Some ballet is about the costumes and the acrobatic tricks, and that's really fun. Um and beautiful, but it's also about expression and often of expression, expressing things that you can't really say in words. And it can transport you like in a mystical way. It can rejuvenate you to watch it. Um, and I think it can kind of tickle your brain to see something physically expressed that you can't say in words. Um, and so I, I like what you say about that ecstatic feeling of dancing, because that's exactly it. It's very hard to convey. <laughs> It's important because otherwise, if you're looking at women who are giving up this much, especially the details in here about, um, you know, women who don't become mothers, even though they wanted to, part of me, like without sort of that little key, that little bit of trying to like have some fellow feeling about the way that might feel if you could succeed at it, part of me is always kind of like, I don't get it. Like, why are they giving up this much for this? <laughs> What's the point? Yeah, I think that's. That's so right. That, that's so true. And I, I did want it to be clear why it feels worth it to people who dance to give up so much and also why it feels worth it to not just write it off as problematic, but find a way to make it better, to make to save it and why that's worth our time. How different is this, what's being described from what people are saying about what it's like to be an elite ballerina now? Is there a balance sheet now? You know, I think things are changing and things have, have changed. And then they also haven't changed. Both are kind of true. Just speaking of motherhood, like you just mentioned, you can be a mother and be a dancer. And um, I spent a couple days following around the Dance Theater of Harlem um, when they were on tour. And uh, one of their dancers is a mother of a toddler. She danced while she was pregnant. Um, and then after she had her baby, she started bringing the baby on tour, and it is amazing to watch this kid just be part of company life. And this is a touring company. They're touring all the time. And the whole company is like helping to take care of this wonderful little child who's watching them and, and toddling around and, and trying to dance along with them. And the artistic director is like carrying the kid during some of the classes so that the dancer can dance. One thing I worry about in sharing this podcast is perpetuating norms by talking about the problematic sides, because there are so many dancers working to improve ballet, to make it more inclusive. Um, to address issues like racism and sexism and heteronormativity that are part of older ballet culture. Um, but I also think that a lot of these problems are still there. And um, a lot of the culture that can be damaging to people is there. I asked the author, Chloe Angel, who wrote an amazing book called The Turning Point um about ballet i was like is ballet a mirror for our society and she said maybe a funhouse mirror 
These are issues that are everywhere and they kind of can get distorted or made a little more extreme in the ballet world because it ends up being kind of intense and insular. So that's still stuff that we need to work through. The first section of your pod was about Mother Teresa and women who were part of her order and then left. So I'm sure you did it on purpose, but this is such a fantastic comparative study of two leaders. So we have two linchpin center of a world people who inspire women to change their lives completely. Um, But obviously one was a woman and one was a man. (laughs) What did you see when looking at this comparison between the two? Um, Was there anything that surprised you when it came to sort of seeing how they bent the world around them? Mother Teresa and Balanchine are definitely very different in many ways, but it really strikes me some of the similarities. And one is just that they both are individuals that have really been put on pedestals um, and are really deeply respected in their respective worlds and the world at large. There aren't a ton of famous Catholic women who are famous for being Catholic, but everyone knows Mother Teresa's name. And Balanchine's not as famous as Mother Teresa, but if you're not a ballet person, um, but you know one choreographer's name, it's very likely Balanchine. And they both, yeah, they both are sort of like, in that sense, I think, uh, figures who help connect their respective worlds to society at large, like a a touch point or like almost a, a, a space of evangelism. Balanchine really did popularize ballet in America in so many ways. And he got ballet to be something that's on television regularly um, during his lifetime and just became such a so, so much more of the center of the art world, maybe than it is now even. Um, and he also became a god figure for his dancers and even the ballet world. And that's not me exaggerating. That's literally what dancer after dancer after dancer have said for decades that he was like a god to them or a prophet who is channeling something for God um, when he's choreographing. And so I think they both became these larger than life figures. And um, they also both have sides to them that despite their fame are under discussed that aren't talked about as much. And season one of The Turning was the ways in which Mother Teresa created an order that had a lot of control. The vow of obedience was taken to a great extreme. And that affected people who followed her in a way that I think most people don't understand. All right, Erica. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Well, that's our show this week. The Waves is produced by Shana Roth. Daisy Rosario is Senior Supervising Producer. Alicia Montgomery is Vice President of Audio. We'd love to hear from you. So email us at thewaves@slate.com. The show will be back next week. Different host, different topic, same time and place. Thanks so much for being a Slate Plus member. Since you're a member, you get this weekly segment. So today, Erica and I are going to talk a little bit more about nuns and ballerinas and how their experience is a little bit more similar than you might think. So Erica, thanks so much for coming back to talk to me about this. Absolutely. Tell me, give me the pitch. How are nuns and ballerinas similar? I started just feeling this similarity between them. And then I was reading a book um, by Chloe Angel, who I also mentioned on the podcast. And on the very first page, she talks about how ballerinas lead nun-like lives. 
And I just couldn't believe my eyes because I was like, oh my gosh, that's you're really speaking to something that I was feeling as well. He didn't really want you to have children. He didn't really want you to get married. So nobody got married, or if they did, it was in secret. And you hid your boyfriend. And um, I think there's a number of ways in which they play somewhat similar roles. One is that I think that ballerinas and nuns, they're often performing femininity in in a specific way um, that relates to like how we view women. And those are different ways from each other. But um, a lot of dancers I talked to uh, talked about learning how to uh, present a certain type of womanhood, how to be feminine, how to be pleasing. Um, And it is very much based in an older way of looking at womanhood and femininity. And I think um, nuns are doing the same thing. Uh, I also think like obedience is really big in both cases, like doing what you're told without question from the person who's above you. And I should say when I'm talking about nuns, um, I'm also really speaking specifically from um, my experience reporting on the missionaries of charity, because there are many different religious orders out there. And but the missionaries of charity are also like they're pretty conservative in how they approach religious life. Yeah, that's so interesting because it really highlights also one um, aspect of like ballerinas sort of dis- like the way of display, um, which is that, you know, they're not necessarily sexy, um, although they're sexualized. Um, and there was an interesting detail in the part of the episode about Balanchine's uh, life in Russia, which is that in Russia, the ballet was a place for um, the aristocracy to find mistresses, which I sort of knew about the 19th century stage, but I didn't know about uh, the ballet, but it sort of tracks a little bit. It feels like now ballet is like a refined femininity that feels a little bit like a hangover or like a, like a vestigial. Yeah, definitely a lot of dancers are trying to push back against that um, in certain ways. But the stories of a lot of the big ballets that you see time and time again um, are these romances that follow older patterns of what a romance looks like. And it's interesting that you brought up sexualizing, because I also think that's a similarity that nuns can be kind of sexualized, too. There's like this sexualizing of nuns and ballerinas and seeing them as like these mystical creatures that are separate from us in some way. And we don't really know why. And they're an object of curiosity for the general public. And it's like they've taken on um, a special way of life that we can only begin to understand. And there's this mystery around it. Um, And the knowledge of the corporal mortification is part of that too. Like the missionaries of charity um, whip themselves and this fascination of outsiders with pain and the pain of ballet um, all seems interwoven. That was just some of our Slate Plus segment. If you want to hear the whole thing, go to slate.com slash the waves plus to become a Slate Plus member today. Slate.com slash the waves plus. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. 
Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.